Hello, and welcome to Mountain Talk. I'm your host, Rachel Geringer. On today's program, we bring you voices and ideas from a recent event we held here at the Apple Shop. On March 31st, WMMT and Scalawag Magazine co-hosted a day-long event focused on ethical Appalachian reporting, followed by a screening of Apple Shop film, Stranger with a Camera, and a Q&A with author Elizabeth Catt. In this episode, we'll hear part of the community discussion about media coverage of the region, as well as Elizabeth Katz's Q&A. Scalawag is a young magazine working to spark critical conversations about the many Souths where we live, love, and struggle, and to amplify the voices of activists, artists, and writers who reckon with Southern realities as they are, rather than as they seem to be. For this event, we wanted to bring people together to talk about how Appalachia is portrayed in regional and national media, to map individuals and organizations telling complex, nuanced stories about our region, and to track those that consistently paint pictures of our mountain homes that flatten us into a homogenous and simple place and people. At the end of the discussion, we brainstormed some to-dos and some not-to-dos for media makers covering the region. The audio you'll hear first comes out of that brainstorming session. The list we developed is by no means complete, and a longer written report of our collective thinking will be shared in the coming weeks. We met in a large and echoey room, so the audio quality is by no means perfect, but we wanted to share some sounds from the day so that folks who weren't able to join us in person can get a sense of the kinds of conversations we had. One more quick note. Earlier in the day, we'd broken out into small groups to stick post-it notes on giant sheets of paper, visualizing the positive, negative, and neutral coverage of Appalachia. You'll hear a few people reference the color blue. Blue post-it notes represented positive coverage and or media producers. So the main thing you need to know is blue means good. Observations? Did you have one? Okay, sorry. If not, we can move into the next question. Um, any last thoughts on sort of this process and moving through it? Yeah, I was going to say that we started out with topics being covered and topics not being covered. Um, the first three in our not covered section were all sort of. Um, like sub-narratives within the opioid crisis, um, which I just think is a nice reminder of the way that when there's a very big narrative, A, you have to report it with nuance, and B, it can kind of become um, a way into sort of a thinking about other narratives as well, right? That are kind of Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's 
I have more of a question, mm -hmm. and I don't know if this is the time for a question, but it's a question that comes up. So we separated the categories into internal media and external media sources or outlets. But my question is, how do folks relate to media, not necessarily whether it's made by somebody from the region or made by somebody that's not from the region, but media that might be made for a different audience versus for the, so somebody could be from, let's say Kentucky, but be writing for a national audience and not writing from a, a local audience. Um, my question is like, how does that factor in? Or how can you tell whether a publication is really regional or national, depending upon who their audience might be? And what are the, I guess, how do you know whether someone is writing to you or not to you? That's a good question. Any folks have thoughts on that? I sort of thought, I thought a little bit about that because there were some regional things that went up in our group that were blue that I felt a little differently about um, because I think I was interpreting them on a local level and having to step step back and just be like, I get it in the greater scheme the reason why they're storytelling is that way. Um, yeah, so like I think I felt a little bit of that whenever I was listening because on a local level, I'm way more protective of the way stories are told. <laughs> um, um, <laughs> I think I'd add a little bit that um, I, I, maybe I haven't given up the hope that there is a way to do national coverage that's still appealable to people and that audience um, shouldn't make a, should make enough difference that we have to sacrifice um local understanding, I guess, and if we can't see ourselves in national covers about us, it just feels like I don't, yeah, yeah it's hard for me to, to understand that. One uh, indicator for me about, like, whether it's for an internal or external audience has to do with, like, the way it connects to some of, like, the grand narratives about the region. Um, one piece that came up in my group was the Al Jazeera piece that kind of talked a bit about Apple Shop and interviewed some folks in this room. And I feel like it kind of like told the history of coal and was like, and now people are doing things. And generally when I see pieces going that far back, I'm like, okay, this is probably not for me. This is probably for someone else who like maybe doesn't know as much about the history of the region. Um, so seeing where people kind of like start their coverage is usually like a, a really big indicator <laughs> for me about who it's for. Yeah, there was a really great article about Apple's shop, actually. It was, I think it was CBS or some kind of like neutral, but it was, it did, it was super good. But then it started out with, did you know people in the mountains make art? <laughs> like you will be surprised. And so that is like a good indicator that something is meant to capture the attention of somebody very much outside the region. And the last thing I'll say really quickly that that just reminded me of is I think it, a lot of these pieces are like directly responding to narratives, like maybe that there's no art in like Appalachia. And so that's all like what is said and what's unsaid and like what they're responding to is always a big indicator for me. I think that's a pretty good transition point after Ada finishes jotting this down into um, we, one of the goals that um, has already been mentioned is sort of you know, to come up with a document or a guide or a set of information that's sourced from folks in this room and folks outside of this room around 
um, sort of like, what is the ideal way to report on Appalachia? Like, what are the do's and don'ts? And so we wanted to, and I think a lot of those do's and don'ts are coming out in these student notes and the various activities we've already contributed to. But we wanted to take the last question to really take an opportunity to specifically ask, what do you do and what do you not do? Um, so yeah, maybe we can start and have like, let's see, we've got about 15 minutes left, so maybe like five, seven minutes on each. So yeah, y'all want to start with what to do or what not to do? Any particular? onto something like interesting don't define the entire region or or that geographic place whether it's a county or a state by that thing um, i mean the most extreme examples are the ones that we see all the time trump country the region being defined by poverty the region being defined by the opioid, opioid epidemic um, there's just that doesn't happen as much at least from what i can see to other places um, it's often at least couched a more as it being a more complex picture or, or a group of individuals or a part of an area as opposed to like, this is the thing that defines. I think this came up in our group is that we talked about like when one person becomes the person that represents the region. Um, thinking about some particular examples around photography, but also like in other, like they're the person who gets called or like, and I think it can, like even if they have good intention, like it can even be like Apple Shop, if Apple Shop's the only one they go to, then they're also missing a story around like what other media is being made in the region, right? Like there, there is other, if one person becomes the person who, who is the, uh, and, and it's not even their choice, like because it's what people are being perceived as, but, um, and because they're like doing awesome good work, but like, it also, I think just like interrogating, like who else is out there? Like who else is, who, who are we not talking to? Um, but I think that that becomes, that becomes part of like creating those, that like those care, kind of a caricature or like even just a very stand, this is the standard for what Appalachian is or for whatever this region is. Um, so yeah, I think being careful about that and, and like offering a, a bunch of different people doing a lot of really awesome rad work. like. Yeah, like, okay, and, and I think that that's also, like, as if you can see yourself as, like, okay, I'm one of those, 
organizations where I'm in one of those positions where people come to me a lot. It's like, okay, who can I be shifting them, them off to, to and who, who else should they be talking to? Do you have something that, in addition to the do's and don'ts in whatever document may come out of this, like a, a, re a source guide um, as well of lots of different people and organizations that reporters should be knowing and contacting? Yeah, and that's, again, I think while we were asking for sort of like specificity in these doc in these little notes so that when other people are visiting this, they can sort of then follow the path. Yeah. One thing that just came up for me in the positive direction is like paying people who live here or paying people to like stay here long term. I think, you know, we already referred to like the parachute journalism phenomenon earlier, and I don't think a lot of these narratives are going to change unless you're talking to people who live here longer than like a weekend or like a visit or whatever. And paying those people is good for a lot of reasons. What about other folks who haven't shared anything yet? Any like major things you don't want to leave without saying? I guess one thing I'd say um, is just. Um, I, um, I don't know which one it falls into because I guess more what I would say is that when, um, if someone's like a national or whatever reporter, like for instance, um, what you were speaking to, Lou, like I can't tell you how many times I've like um, give, given people like 10 other folks to talk to and their contact info and da da da, but because they come with a narrative they already want to tell, it's like there's no moving them off the person and the path that they're on. Um, and so um, I don't know, I don't really know what to do about it. <laughs> um, and, and I know we've already said, like, we should prevent more people and people shouldn't come with a narrative. But, like, I don't know if it's, like, just deciding not to talk to that report. Like, I, I don't know. But it, I feel like it's all, it's, it's been a like, continual thing that it's been, like, it, they're going to report on something. <laughs> Um, do you decide to talk to them or not? Um, so anyway, I think that's a, I don't know what to put on this sheet, um, but um, I feel like it's a hard place. I always like, what do I do as someone who like does have media come to them and they're not moving? Um, Maybe that could be captured as like coming without expectations or um, coming with flexibility. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Any last few in the last few minutes? Did you have one? But just, just off of what Ada was saying, there's a structural problem in that most uh, most folks who are trying to write a story, especially for national consumption, are going to fall into an existing national narrative, and they won't get published otherwise because it's simple enough for enough readers to understand and to click on. And we're talking about a very nuanced and complex region, wishing that a nuance and complexity was reflected in the news, but nuance and complexity is not reflected in the news, whether it's about Appalachia or not. So the, I think it's difficult to say what should or shouldn't be done about Appalachia for these reporters who have their own people who they're uh, responding to or um, answering to. That makes me wonder about how you get them to answer to other people, right? You can imagine if every time there was a really Appalachian story, like uh, that there was a kind of outcry like happened after that, <clears throat> that New York Times white nationalist profile, right? I mean, that's the kind of thing that would like significantly, I think, might have some way of shifting it if you're able to get, you know, papers like the New York Times or national institutions to feel like they've really been shamed, right? 
but I think that's a pretty hard thing to do. Well, I but that kind of accountability seems important. Yeah. Sorry, I'm sorry. No, it's something that's not. Well, I think for so for guidelines for reporting, so perhaps even for like guidelines for reporting institutions like a Scalawag or like an Apple Shop, like it seems like you're already doing a lot of this work, especially um, organizations who've been around longer, but. Uh, like having structures in place for younger journalists to be able to like learn how to pitch like Scalawag was talking about earlier and to be able to like make these connections with bigger national news organizations so that people already in a place who maybe have a more complex story of a place are, are pitching those stories in successful ways. Yeah, I was thinking more on the kind of regional media level too of like how we report in and of our own communities and what that looks like. And to me, like one of the do nots that, we, that I feel like I see too often is whether it's like radio news, other like uh, TV news, whatever outlets that are just talking to like the people who are holding office to kind of the power holders in the community. And if you're just talking to those folks, you're doing it wrong. Um, yeah, I was just thinking about kind of regional level about that. And the tendency to like, the both sides thing, having to hear both sides. And so like, I, know, I noticed in a lot of our, um, not all, but a lot of local and regional, it's like, you know, what is it to be impartial? And like, is there really anything that is impartial, but like a real hands off of like political, anything that's like super political as far as, you know, or like, I think specifically around like the white supremacist stuff and like, actually, no, this is bad. <laughs> These people are, are terrible. <laughs> Any last burning thoughts? Same, you got one? Well, this is on that, I mean, I just see a, the total lack of or and working class people's first actual perspective and just talk about in general, like people able to tell their own stories. And especially with you know, this region does get associated with poverty, but there are actually, it's all the coverage of poverty. I never read something actually from poor people who are speaking for themselves from the region and almost anything. Like this thing about interviewing people who are either like empower or empower in various ways, yeah. like Hold public offices or they are on top that's like who tells our story. So I just to, to piggyback on that. For me, me there's a lot of money in poverty in rank four. You're listening to Mountain Talk on WMMT 88.7 FM, broadcasting from the Apple Shop in Whitesburg, Kentucky. On today's episode, we're hearing voices and ideas from a recent event co-hosted by Scalawag Magazine and WMMT. On March 31st, we held a community discussion around ethical Appalachian reporting, followed by a screening of Stranger with a Camera and a Q&A with author and historian Elizabeth Catt. We just heard a brainstorming session focused on developing a to-do and not-to-do guide for national media makers documenting our mountain homes. In the second half of this episode, we'll hear author Elizabeth Catt reading from her new book, What You Were Getting Wrong About Appalachia, and answering audience questions. 
Apple Shop's own Ada Smith introduces Kat and moderates the Q&A. Um, all right, folks, I think we're going to get going. Um, thanks for sticking around. This is going to be the last part of this kind of event, convening conversation. Um, but uh, Elizabeth came here, which is awesome. Thank you. Um, um, Elizabeth wrote this really great book. There's a few, out, a few for sale outside, which are getting wrong about Appalachia. Um, and so um, I'm going to let you mostly introduce yourself. Um, and maybe, maybe first, if you could just tell us a little bit about um, why you wrote the book, um, and then she's going to read a little bit for us. Then I'll kick a question, and then we'll turn to you all about questions about this or the film or whatever. Sound good? So I'm from East Tennessee, from Knoxville, but right now I live in Stanton, Virginia, which is in the Shenandoah Valley. And um, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Um, if you've read the book, I hope <laughs> what comes across more than how angry I am um, <laughs> is how much I love um, our organizations, and especially organizations like Apple Shop. Um, and so the, the way this book came about, there's no like cool backstory. Um, I had just been so angry on the internet for so long. Somebody finally gave me a book deal. Um, uh, I came to um, know uh, a publisher in the Rust Belt because people can't tell Appalachia and the Rust Belt apart. Um, and she asked me if I'd be interested in writing some essays for publication um, connected to the popularity of Hillbilly Elegy, but also um, things that were being said about Appalachia uh, connected to the 2016 election. So I said, sure, because I was unemployed, um, because I had bought into the myth that, um, you know, you can't have a legible and fulfilled life in Appalachia. You always have to move outside of the region, but that didn't work out. Um, and so I had time to do this. And this was the result of, um, you know, reflecting on the narrative, so to speak, but also um, my part in it and um, the way that a really unhealthy and toxic direction that the narrative was moving towards that had um, some precedence to me as a historian that I saw. So I will read you, I think, um, since I read about Stranger with a Camera, I'll just read that section and hopefully not too much, but then we'll just, you know, kind of talk informally. But um, my book is essentially three essays that are sort of related to one another. And this is the middle essay, which is the, um, the Hillbilly Elegy essay. But I started it out talking about um, Stranger with a Camera, which is one of my favorite documentaries, and hopefully you'll see the connections that I made between those two um, texts. So a camera is a gun. An hour before his murder, Canadian filmmaker Hugh O'Connor paid a young coal miner in Jeremiah, Kentucky, $10 for the use of his image in an exhibition film destined for the 1968 World's Fair. Covered in coal dust and cradling his child, the miner had, quote, an expression of total despair, quote, O'Connor's film crew remembered that it was an extraordinary shot so evocative of the despair of the region. The miner lived in a rented cottage among half a dozen other families set in a small clearing of land owned by Hobart Eisen, who offered the cottages for $10 a month. For the price of a month's rent, the miner traded his image to a man whom his landlord would soon shoot and kill. Eisen, armed with a revolver, discovered O'Connor and his crew of five on his land just minutes after the filmmaker concluded their final shot. 
Eisen ordered the men off of his property, but weighed down by their equipment, the crew could not escape before Eisen opened fire. He put one bullet in the camera and a second in Hugh O'Connor's chest. According to O'Connor's producer, the filmmaker fell to his knees, calling out to Eisen, why did you have to do that? Before dying moments later. The film company that hired O'Connor sent funds to Kentucky to help the Commonwealth's attorney prosecute Eisen, but his influence and wealth had little return in Letcher County. Even though Eisen was an eccentric in Jeremiah, he enjoyed enormous community support after his arrest. Quote, streams of people came to visit Eisen in jail before he was released, Calvin Trillin wrote in The New Yorker. Women from around Jeremiah baked him cakes. After an unsuccessful jury selection, and no locals would even entertain the idea of Eisen's guilt, a judge ordered the trial moved to nearby Harland County. The first trial resulted in a hung jury, and Eisen struck a deal, pleading guilty to involuntary manslaughter midway through the second. He served one year in prison and died ten years later in 1978 at the age of 80. In 1999 and 2000, uh, Kentucky filmmaker Elizabeth Barrett released Stranger with a Camera, a documentary exploring the context of the murder. And answering the film's central question, what brought these two men face to face on that day in 1967, Barrett examines the impact of Appalachian poverty pictures, images of lurid white poverty intended to shock middle-class audiences. Their creators often cited poverty pictures as a necessary catalyst for social change, exposing alarming conditions of inequality in Appalachia. In reality, Barrett argues, outsiders mind images in the way that companies mind coal. So what becomes of a people, Barrett's documentary asks, when they become a wellspring for the pity for the nation's pity or disgust? One answer lies in Barrett's interview with Mason Eldridge, the minor filmed by O'Connor just before his death. Eldridge is sincere, open, and friendly, but never lifts his eyes to Barrett's camera. One man lowered his eyes and another lifted his gun. Both responses, Barrett suggests, are reactions to exploitation and shame. The visual archive of Appalachia created in the 1960s focused exclusively on the region's deprivation. In the process of its creation, it provided raw material for a new moral position about the poor. The belief that poverty is a character flaw or demonstration of moral weakness hangs over every image of a barefoot child or unemployed minor. The American Dream had become a nightmare, the BBC announced in 1967 in a documentary about Eastern Kentucky. To be Appalachian was to be heir to a distinct kind of wretchedness endlessly performed before an international audience. This created layers of shame and communities like Jeremiah, the more well-to-do, often came to resent the poor for acting as the enticements for those with greedy cameras. The ties that bind communities together are not always positive, Barrett observes. As a local with a camera, Barrett has a connection to both Eisen and O'Connor that is painful and real. Her interviews with O'Connor's family and colleagues are among the most films wrenching scenes precisely because they possess a clarity about O'Connor's death that Barrett and her community will never and perhaps should never experience. All are sympathetic to the suffering caused by willful misrepresentation of a community, and they forgive. But for all the soul-searching performed by Barrett is one of O'Connor's Canadian colleagues, Colin Lowe, who delivers the most electrifying lines in the documentary. A camera is like a gun, he explains. It is threatening, it's invasive, ex exploitative, and it's not always true. So I thought about Stranger with a Camera often last year, believing that the time had come to experience, as Barrett did, what it's like to live among so many people who have snapped and who have put their pain and resentment in the service of terrible outcomes. Their politics will kill good people, so if a camera is a gun, then surely a vote can be too. But I also thought about Barrett's work for another reason. Outdated theories about a culture of poverty in Appalachia, honed in the 1960s, had become popular again 
once more thanks to Hillbilly Elegy. Much like the visual archive generated during the War on Poverty, Elegy sells white middle-class observers an invasive and exploitative story about the region. For white people uncomfortable with the images of the civil rights struggle and the realities of black life those images depicted, an endless stream of sensationalized white poverty offered them an escape, a window into a more recognizable world of suffering. This intimacy, both now and then, does not equal less contempt, just more value for the viewer and the creator. And so I'll skip ahead and read just a few paragraphs from the end of this section, because what happened um, was last year my alma mater. You all familiar with Shelby Lee Adams? He's a uh, very popular Appalachian photographer. He's not my favorite. Some people like him, but he has a very striking image style that is very reminiscent of 1960s poverty pictures. So this ties everything together. So last year, my alma mater, a state school outside of Appalachia, selected Elegy as required reading for all incoming freshmen and paired its selection with a financial arrangement with photographer Shelby Lee Adams to sell Appalachian poverty pictures. Known for posed and stylized black and white portrait work of mountain families, Adams has made a career photographing the poor among Appalachians. It's kind of controversial. Like many photographers before him, including Arthur Rothstein, he favors images of the poor, often disabled individuals in contexts frequently manipulated. Adams photographs the same families over time and has developed what he presents as an insider status among his impoverished subjects, despite his own solidly middle-class upbringing and training at the Cleveland Institute of Art. His most forceful claim to the status appears in Appalachian Lives for the ghost of Hobart Eisen, the man who murdered Hugh O'Connor. Among the photographs of Adams tells a story, one day he finds himself down a holler in Kentucky, uh, photographing a family in their trailer, and as he works, the owner of the property, this time a woman, arrives and orders him to leave. In this version of The Stranger with a Camera story, Adams has a less heated exchange with the property owner, who nevertheless menaces him by asking um, if, if, they, if Adams knows what people do to nosy photograph photographers in Letcher County. So Adams said not only is he aware, he defiantly tells the property owner, Hobart Isom, who he refers to as Hobart Isom, in his text as his cousin. Adams' subjects become active participants in this version of the legend by helping drive away the property owner so he can continue taking their pictures. In the conversation after the encounter, Adams reports that the family provided its blessing to sell their images for $1,000 apiece confronting and ultimately dismissing in smug fashion questions of exploitation and Adams' arrangement with his subjects. Um, my former university insisted that Adams' work is the photographic analog of J.D. Vance's Hillbilly LG, the author and photographer tell corresponding stories through different means. And this is true, but not in the way that my alma mater insists that it is. The shared story and analogs at work are not about people, but about power. It reflects how credibil credibility falls easily to those given the privilege of defining who or what Appalachian is. It also shows the rewards that fall to individuals universally men and exclusively white, regardless of the company they keep. It is the power to grant yourself permission for the continued exploitation of vulnerable subjects, and it is the power to have your work selected as emblematic of a cultural moment by individuals and organizations that didn't care one iota about Appalachia until their gaze could feel the region with pathologies. <laughs> Thanks.
Um, yeah, so my job is just, I'm going to um, ask Elizabeth a couple of questions, and then I want to open it up to y'all just to give y'all a chance to um, think about what you want to say. Um, but first off, obviously, as I said, thank you for being yeah, here, Elizabeth. We're so glad you're here, and um, thanks for reading some of your mm -hmm. book. And um, I think a lot of us who have read the book or um, been able to at least skim through it, read mm -hmm. parts of it, um, you know, feel like it's been a huge um, added voice to the narrative. And um, of course, I've felt a lot of the anger you were talking about. Um, but, um, you know, one of the things that um, I read in the book and was hoping you could bring in um, is, um, at least for me, um, besides your kind of critique of Elegy and some of the other articles that had come out, is that, um, you know, you really did an amazing job as a historian of, like, connecting um, culture of poverty to ideas of white supremacy um, and the kind of, like, um, eugenics movement um, and and of course the connections between turning face from communities of color to white communities mm -hmm. um, and so I was just hoping you'd speak a little bit more about um, uh, your kind of path into moving through that history um, and um, why you don't feel like you know in some ways this region has ever I mean like I literally think this is the first book in the Appalachian Studies mm -hmm. world that has made those connections right. um, and think it's really profound Mm -hmm. you know, outside of just critiquing elegy, just the um, uh, historical points you put together. Yeah. So I think one of the reasons why that isn't, hasn't been done before is the legacy of Harry, um, who we saw in, in the video, Harry Caudill, um, who is like kind of the anchor that I use to connect um, how the story of the eugenics movement and white supremacy kind of, um, I suppose, how those tentacles work. So essentially, the point that I want to point out is that when you are interested in a culture of poverty, when you make arguments that um, a culture is flawed, when you say that there is there are cultural explanations for why people are poor, you are never far behind um, arguments about genetic inferiority. Um, they often travel together. They're often connected together. Often when people want to say that there are groups and demographics that are genetically inferior, they make um, arguments about culture to kind of cover that up. And how we can sort of see that is um, the history of, of Harry Caudill, who, again, was a powerful voice in the region, um, who in many real ways, his fate was connected to the poor people around him because of the impact and the legacy of strip mining and the environmental destruction caused by the coal industry, but after the war on poverty 10 years later, um, when he looked around to the community and he saw that um, the people hadn't elevated themselves after a decade of government assistance in the way that he thought that they should have, um, he said, oh, you know, what else can explain this? You know, what else? And he landed on genetics. And of course, he enticed people who were involved in the, um, the eugenics movement in the 1970s very... Um, kind of shocking, people with shocking ideas to come to Whiteburg to test the potential to start um, a sterilization clinic in the mountains. Um, and, so when, and when, so when I read Hillbilly Elegy um, and I saw all of these discussions travel in a circle around um, poverty and culture and this innateness that people talk about the deficiencies that are found and the problems that are found in Appalachia, many alarm bells started ringing for me. And they did because I know the specific history, but also I think anyone that had read this book should have had the same alarm bells ringing. Um, because what happens is we, 
we have people who nominate themselves as experts on culture and expert on race science, and um, they often use Appalachia to mitigate the racist origins and applications of their beliefs. And we saw this very clearly if you look at the history of Harry Caudill and the people that he tried to attract to Whitesburg, but we can see this in the relationship between um, sinister figures like Charles Murray and also J.D. Vance, um, how there's not a barrier between the the sort of the, the applications and the origins of these beliefs. They're often rooted in the same kind of sinister um, they they travel together and the, the idea behind them is to make deficiencies seem innate when they're not and um, that's very alarming to me so those are the kind of compact ideas that I wanted to make in this book um, because again I think the the, the big like the, the spokesperson um, phenomenon is very real in Appalachian studies particularly in the kind of the impact of and the still he's a very still beloved figure Harry Caudill and that kind of closes the door um, for some of the conversations that we should have had a long time ago about some of these topics. Yeah, well, thank you for making the connections. <laughs> um, um, and then the only other question before I pitch it to yeah. everybody else is um, um, clearly, um, for instance, Harry Cottle and Shelby Lee um, 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 and then um, my mom and you are people who grew up in this region um, and have very different um, approaches to the work, right? And so, you know, I think in this conversation we've been having all day, um, you know, just because you're from a place doesn't mean you're going to be um, uh, writing or reporting in a way that um, maybe is just and fair, right? Um, and so I just wanted to ask you, um, um, you know, you were saying you kind of did this because you had the opportunity, you're angry, et cetera. But um, just as this book gets picked up more, as you're um, doing speaking engagements mm -hmm. more, et cetera, um, you know, um, how you've kind of juggled the um, questions that we've been covering today mm -hmm. around the ethics of writing and reporting, yeah. um, the ethics of photography, all that, and just um, um, that it's not just an insider-outsider dynamic, right? Yeah, I think um, so. So one of the points that I like to raise is that um, when we say we want better coverage about Appalachia, we, that doesn't mean we want like better like boosterism in our stories. We don't want like uh, you're not telling like positive stories. We just want like more nuance and um, better better frames of reference for the stories that we tell. Um, all of the stuff that happened. So I live right now like 30 minutes outside of Charlottesville. So all the things that were happening this um, summer about. Nazis in our region and white supremacy. I think those are great examples of like um, moments when the insider outsider dynamic just didn't work. So we had like very, very bad coverage from regional media outlets um, about the events of August 12th and um, the events that were in Pikeville as well. Um, and then we had great coverage from people outside of the region who had um, been covering these like very difficult topics for much longer. Um, and so I think that was like a tremendous example of when, you know, um, th that kind of framework just kind of fell away. It's something that you said earlier, like really kind of resonated with me. Like, what do you do when people contact you and, and you know, what, what happens? And you said, like, I could recommend um, 10 people and it might not make a difference. So that's something that's on my mind a lot. Um, it's a little bit different for me because... Um, like this is happening in the context of interviews. So at least there's a paper trail. Like they will print, you know, people are more, you know, will print my words, if not like go seek them out themselves. So that's nice. But I, I think, um, and this was a suggestion. I, I can't remember who threw it out, but it seemed great. I think maybe it was Luke, but um, we have a better awareness of the work that we're all doing 
in different ways and different forms. Um, you know, people who are doing creative arts, people who are doing criticism, people who are doing investigative journalism, um, to, to network together better um, and see if that takes us any further. I think that there's some kind of formal, um, I think what I'm worried, worried about is, um, you know, like the Ground Truth Project and Report for America, people will send us journal, you know, send journalism, journalism students and interns and, and emerging journalists to the region to kind of cover it and think that we should be grateful for this. Um, and we very much, I think, need to um, make sure that, I don't know, the people here can get paid for doing the work because I think I, I have the feeling that we're already doing the work for them. We just don't get credit for it and don't get paid for it. Um, so I want to create more, you know, try, try hard to create more opportunities for that to happen. And so in order to do that, I have to be very aware of what people are doing in the region. And I take that responsibility like very seriously. Yeah. And that, and that you um, have critiqued people in the region yeah. too, that that's part of it. Right. Yeah, so, um, sure. anyway, um, anybody got thoughts or questions either for Elizabeth or about what we've been talking about? Poverty pictures was how, and this is what you like say so well. Also, is um, you know that it's placing blame for poverty on impoverished people through this idea that there's a culture of poverty, and um, and it sort of uh, covers up the things that you named, and I think it covers up too like the real roots of poverty in um, capitalism and um, the you know the practices of the the corporations that are here that are um, not paying people what their labor's worth. So. In terms of how to do better coverage, um, I just wondered sort of what you might have to say about um, you know, how reporting can, you, you said you know, more nuanced, but is there something specific about reporting that, um, that tries to get at the roots of the problems that we're talking about? Um, I, think, I think the most helpful thing I could say is that one of the best articles that I have seen recently, like in the past year about Appalachia, and I like I don't remember the author, but it was in courts. Um, and it was like a long form piece about, um, you know, this is like the 100 year industry that has kept Appalachia sick. And it was fantastic. It was um, a general piece that was aimed for people outside the region, but was um, firmly rooted into exploring the way that um, capitalism had kind of um, that that is the connection that flows through the region, not, you know, individual failings, not personal weaknesses, like these very broad systemic issues. Um, and I think there's tremendous um, potential for journalism to um, make these complicated systems that are um, affecting our lives, make them visible and legible and personalize them and help people understand how those um, those systems are, are impacting people and also just show how these systems connect people outside the region. Like this is a tremendous opportunity, I think, as we move forward to give people here in Appalachia um, stories that might get them thinking to get them thinking about how their fates are connected to people, you know, in other fossil fuel dependent regions like Southeast Texas, where I spent some time, but things like that to make these things, these systems that are complicated, um, visible and legible would be would be like absolutely tremendous. I'm wondering if there's a, almost unlimited 
source, which is simple that we can continue to listen and like guidance about what is working with us and what's not actually working with us. I'm just wondering how you kind of zoomed in on that and chose who uh, chose this book. Yeah, I mean, um, it's it's basically the people that were important to me, um, most important to me. And that's kind of how I, I chose the people that I talked about in the book. Um, they tended to be people who had historical significance because I'm a, I'm a historian. Um, and it was very, I mean, I was very conscious. So what happens is um, the publisher gives me like 150 pages and that's all I can write. I can't go over it or under it. Um, so I was, you know, mortified that I would leave, um, somebody out and I'm sure that I did. And so I have like the text in the back that is, um, hopefully guiding people towards other figures and organizations that they can, um, read about. And at some point, hopefully there'll be like a living bibliography that will be online somewhere that will be interactive and point people towards more resources. But really this was like, I think in my book, I see like, this is, I wanted to make a family like photo album. And so these are the people that like, when you make your family tree or you decide who my self-created family would be, um, these are the people that would be right there for me. Um, and um, that was, you know, those were kind of, you know, what I decided to do in the book. But yeah, there's definitely like an unlimited source of inspiration that people could take um, for the region. Yeah, and one thing I'll say, Elizabeth, we, uh, I think there's a lot of people, and especially in the moment right now, who we've been talking about how much time we end up talking about um, toxic men <laughs> um, and how much time we have to, like, explain the historical context of, like, why their theories are impossible and not working and, bubble, you know, um, and just how much energy gets spent on um, um, their work and their narratives. Um, and so, you know, just in the same way that Tanya was saying, um, the fact that you were including so many other um, people who had done it in a different way and why aren't we looking at it and um, why aren't we lifting these stories up, I think um, was just another really powerful part of your book. Yeah, it is like super hard. Like I'm very sensitive to this dilemma that we have in the region, which is like how much time do we spend like unpacking toxic narratives versus how much time do we spend like doing our own thing? Um, and I, I think for me, it was, it was, you know, I decide what to do based on where I think my talents are. And I'm a, I'm a decent critic and I'm a better critic that say like somebody who does creative arts or somebody who does, you know, um, really important, like first person kind of narratives and things like that. So, um, for me, it was just like <laughs> where my, where my labor was of best use. And so I feel like what I just, when I say what the, what I hope the book does, I kind of describe it like as a horror movie. Um, and there's a scene in the heart, like every horror movie where there's like zombies coming in the door and you have your back to the door and like the hands are all coming. So I've got my back to the door and I'm hoping that like this gives like a little breathing room for everybody else just for like a minute who wants to come in and like take this, you know, take use this momentum to either like run past and start doing their own thing or like fight with me or just, you know, you know, like kind of like just, you know, screw off completely. But like, I'm just, I feel like I'm like kind of like holding things, um, holding this hillbilly elegy thing like back just a little bit so we can all like breathe a little bit more. Yeah. Do you think you're getting traction? Um, yeah, so um, like the behind the scenes thing is kind of interesting. Um, traction, like <laughs> I still don't make a living, which is, you know, the reality of being an antagonistic voice and a woman and a person from, you know, um, a, a region 
um, where people are more comfortable writing about than letting people, you know, um, write against. Um, but I have heard from people in publishing that there are like a lot of like hillbilly elegy, like generic, you know, like, I guess like best value hillbilly like coming out. And so this is like dampened the momentum for some of that a little bit, a little bit. So that I feel very useful. I mean, I feel like I've like done what I wanted to do um, to know that there's like a little bit more skepticism in the world, um, the big media world now because of some of this, um, this, this conversation, not only that I'm having, but that, you know, people are, are listening to as well that, that have like been happening, um, you know, for like months and months and months. Well, I always like to end things up with what about the future as we look at our younger generation and what what can be done to put things in schools or the things in schools to I, I'm not even sure what this question is, but I always you know what I mean? I always I'm I'm a I'm an educator, previous educator, and it's like what's happening on that front? I mean children's books, young adult books, you know, I am I going no, I mean, it's okay. Um, I think that's a question for the younger generation to answer, though. I'm not, ex I mean, I like, you know, maybe, maybe I'm kind of, no, I'm not one of the younger, I, I wish I was. Yeah, I'm definitely, I'm definitely not like, you know, um, uh, on my way out, but I'm definitely not part of like the, who, who um, people usually talk about when they talk about the next, you know, the young generation. Um, I think one of the things that I do to contribute to that, though, is somebody like a little bit. Um, older is I try to break down the narrative that um, you have to leave the region to be successful. And I think um, definitely personal, like personal circumstances are a big part of that. But there is not a place in this world that you can go and not live around people who are being exploited, who are being poisoned. There's not a place that you can go to not be around people who the, the system has declared disposable and therefore, um, you know, act accordingly on that. And I think that that is um, kind of like is one of the things that keeps us separated and keeps us from recognizing the power that we have um, to connect to one another, particularly. So um, it's a hard road. And it, I would never say you must leave or you must stay. But I think, you know, for certain, one of the things that people like me who are, you know, kind of just a little bit, a little bit beyond that can do is um, show young people that they can have a future here. Um, and even if it's just like better connecting and better explaining what they're, I mean, you, you're the expert on this, so, but, but anyway, that's, you know, one of the things that, that we can do um, for, for people, um, especially when we talk about Appalachia in the media. But I mean, you guys, you guys founded the, like the organization to do that. So I should let you answer that. Yeah. Well, Lou is the coordinator for a group called the Stay Project, um, Stay Together Appalachian Youth. And Kendall was a coordinator. And um, a lot of people in this room had been a part of that before they were 30 plus. Um, but um, it, it's a great um, resource and, and um, voice um, of young people in the region. Um, um, and then, of course, the Appalachian Media Institute, the, I think the Appalachian Transition Fellowship Program, even though it's not just for young people, I think has been um, showing a lot of what young people want and what they're interested in. Um, so, you know, there, I think there's a lot of good groups um, to point to and ask those questions. And um, again, Elizabeth lifts up stay in this book, which is really awesome. Um, and um, you know, I, I, I do just, again, want to thank you for being here, Elizabeth, and thank you for your writing. Um, and of course, thanks Galawag and WMMT yeah. for um, making this conversation possible. I hope it was helpful for everyone. And um, um, just so everyone in this room knows, um, um, 
I feel like Elizabeth's work has been getting a lot of traction. <laughs> um, Tanya yeah. works with me at Apple Shop and um, we do some donor work and um, just the amount of times people have mentioned LG to us and we're just like literally like handing it out. Like, <laughs> um, like read this, read this, read this. Um, and, um, you know, um, I hope that um, more writing comes yeah. from yours, right? Um, yeah, it's, I hear sure. you be open to that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there's like, a, there's a big volume of work. I think some people in this room probably participated, but it's, um, it's through West Virginia University Press, but it's all kinds of responses, um, inspired by Hillbilly Elegy is poetry, photography, um, all that kind of stuff. And like, I'm really looking forward to like not being not talking about this book so much too. So I hope that that is something that, you know, happens in the future where we're just, you know, kind of using our momentum to tell better stories that are about us. Great note to end on. Thanks, everyone. That's it for this episode of Mountain Talk, featuring voices and ideas from a recent event about ethical Appalachian reporting, co-hosted by Scalawag Magazine and WMNT. If you'd like to hear this or previous episodes again, you can find them on our website at www.wmnt.org or download Mountain Talk wherever you get your podcasts. Music on this episode comes from Apple Shop's own June Apple recording of Brett Ratliff with a tune called Forked Deer. That song is on Brett's 2008 album, Cold Icy Mountain. I've been your host, Rachel Geringer, and from all of us at WMMT, thanks for listening to Real People Radio. <laughs>